the science shows that love is more powerful than hate or fear. We have trouble saying the L word, but it's okay. Um, I try to end every conversation with the word service. And that is to me the philia kind of love. Um, you've been so kind to me. You've been you've prepared so beautifully. I want to help you. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, here's a question for today. What makes someone trustworthy? What do you look for? You know, if you had to pin it down to a single trait or indicator, what would it be? Now think about how many people we trust in our lives or we have to trust in our lives just for a second. People we trust with our vision, our businesses, our children, our finances, the health and wealth of our entire nation. And yet, how do we ever really know if someone can be trusted? How do we know their moral code until it's tested? And by that point, essentially, it's sometimes too late. Which brings me on to my next question and ultimately the focus of today's episode. Is there a reliable, i.e. scientific way that we can predict and therefore design for trustworthy behavior? A way of being able to kind of trust who we can trust, I guess, in a way. And if there is, might it be possible to use it not only when it comes to other people, but also for ourselves to increase our own likelihood of behaving in a way that fits with our intentions with the vision of the human being that we want to be on our best days. Now, when I first started diving into this topic, the marriage of combining science with trust seemed like a pretty unlikely one because human beings, we're mysteries, right? We're, We're a walking soup of contradictions, hormones, reactions, and any attempt to predict our behavior historically has usually failed. And yet this simple force, I kept coming back to this simple force, trust, because it's the glue that holds together every single fundamental part of the world that we know and the world which most of us probably take a little bit for granted. Our society, our democracy, our marriages, they all rely totally upon its existence. So it would probably seem about time, at least for myself, that we dived a little deeper into the exact mechanics of how it works. Now, my guest on today's episode has done exactly that, but he's also taken it one step, or let's just say one quantum leap further. He has identified the actual molecule responsible for trust and then found a way that it can be used to predict behavior with up to 80% accuracy, 80%. Now, most of us rely on a bit of gut feel and a little bit of luck of the draw. So I would say that anything above 50, for myself at least, is is a pretty sizable increase in accuracy. Paul Zak is the founding director of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies and a professor of economics, psychology, and management at Claremont Graduate University. Paul's two decades of research has taken him from the Pentagon to Fortune 50 boardrooms to the rainforests of Papua New Guinea. All this in a quest to understand the neuroscience of human connection, human happiness, and effective teamwork. His latest book, Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies, uses neuroscience to measure and manage organizational cultures to accelerate their business outcomes. In 2012, he wrote The Moral Molecule, The Source of Love and Prosperity, and that recounted his unlikely discovery of the exact 
neurochemical that drives trust, love, and human morality. Now, we in today's episode, we dive around into every single pocket of his history, including why human beings are the only creatures with a fully developed moral code and how we use it to predict behavior and essentially keep ourselves safe. The moral molecule, what it is, how it works, and how it can be harnessed to increase the likelihood of trustworthy behavior. The link between trust and prosperity and why understanding the science of trust might just be the key to alleviating poverty. How Paul's career and his experiences in this field have impacted his own approach to building trust as both a leader of a very successful organization and as a parent. And finally, probably the bit that blew me away the most, which is how and what all of this information tells us about the future of storytelling including exactly how to structure a story in order to trigger the chemicals in the brain that are directly responsible for people taking action. So taking a scientific approach to the future of storytelling. So much in that that Paul unpacks. On on reflection, probably the piece of this conversation that stuck with me the most over the last few days since, since we had it is the concept of time-ins, using time-ins as a trigger. Now, the essential idea behind that is that when people behave in a way that leads us to disconnect, either as a leader, as a partner, a friend, or a parent, often our instinct is to give them a timeout. I don't like your behavior. You need a timeout. We use that to set them apart, to make an example in some occasions, to reinforce the rules through separation. And in most countries, we've based an entire criminal justice system on that one guiding principle of a timeout. And yet in many of these occasions, what's actually needed and what is actually probably more effective is a time in, a bringing of that human being closer into the fold, an acknowledgement that given the wrong combination of situations, chemicals, hormones, and moments in time, we can all and will all to varying degrees lose sight of our best selves. On that note, I'll let you listen to that and take your own conclusions hunker down hide out if you're still if you're still in lockdown find somewhere quiet and soak up both the science and the wisdom of the incredible paul zach podcast, Paul Zach. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. I was just saying to you off air that when I started jumping into your world, I felt like I could just pitch a tent and live there for for a number of years. I'm so excited to unpack some of this with you today. But before we kick off, there's a question that I'm asking at the beginning at the moment. The good thing about the podcast is it means I get to do a variety of social experiments of my own for my own pleasure. And the one that I'm running at the moment is the hypothesis that people that have interesting ideas tend to either notice or come across other interesting and important ideas before the majority of us. And so my kickoff question for you today is, is there any particular idea at the moment that's really hit you or grabbed your attention that you're diving into? It's a great question, Julie, and a deep question. I think the thing that I'm really obsessed with now is connection as a core essential human behavior. We have to connect or we don't thrive. We have to connect or we don't do effective work. And we have to connect or we're not happy. Why is that? Why? And I'm just sat here thinking, well, to do great deep work, 
some might say that that takes isolation, right? It takes getting into flow. It takes, you know, putting a, getting tunnel vision. So what's the linkage with connection there? Right. And I, I would agree with you, uh, you know, 10 years ago and before, and I'm a big introvert and a, you know, nerdy scientist. Um, but what our research showed is that our brains are designed for connection. And a lot of the research we've done shows that um, our mood and our satisfaction with life depends on connection. We certainly know that teamwork is effective at work. And so in my personal life, I started taking my own research seriously and investing in relationships. And I found that I was much happier. I felt more connected. I had more at a wider network for sure. So a couple of years ago, I turned 50 and I had four surprise birthday parties. So I never had four surprise birthday parties as a kid, I'll tell you that. So those are people that I'd really formed strong enough connections with that they were somehow interested in throwing me a party. How great was that? I was going to say, those are surprise parties that people threw for you, not that you threw four of your own surprise birthday parties for everybody else. <laughs> and just, just again, going, just getting micro on that. So the, the double down that you did on your relationships there, you feel like that had a flow on effect in the quality of work that you created? Not only the quality of work, but the satisfaction with that work. So certainly the quality had a larger network of individuals to work with. But even the way I managed my teams, um, I started thinking more about connection first and productivity second. And I think the research we've done in the past five or six years on the role of trust in building high-performance teams has borne out that intuition that if I invest in you as a, as a human being, not as a piece of human capital, then you are much more likely to put in discretionary effort to innovate, to um, to enjoy what you're doing more than if I kind of manage by the numbers. And um, prior to doing this research, you know, I'm a Martian, so that's that's my key. Um, I don't really understand humans. That's why I do research, uh, you know, measuring productivity and human behavior, try to help myself be a little less Martian-y. Um, but yeah, I used to kind of manage by the numbers like a lot of people because it's concrete. It's I can see it. And I'd have these discussions. People are missing their goals. Then I started realizing, you know, from the science we did, hey, people actually have lives. Uh, God forbid. Uh, they, you know, they have emotions. They have good days. They have bad days. And once you kind of look at that over the longer term, you realize that if I invest in this person, then they're going to get excited about what we're doing as a team. If I invest in my friendships, they're going to be more excited about spending time with me and me with them, right? So it's really thinking about this as as an investment in happiness. So I even say people who are introverted like me, but also people who are kind of loners, um, you can be uh, completely selfish and still want to invest in relationships because the data are very clear that you'll live happier and longer. And I think we all would like that. I love that you take a science-based approach to relationships. My husband, he's he's a deep, deep introvert, and we call it in our house we call it the Spock effect. You know, remember Doctor Spock from Star Wars, and the way that he would look to look at the other people on the spacecraft when they were having an emotion with that kind of confused look on his face, like there seems to be water coming out of your eyes. You know, it just. The, that kind of very scientific, isn't that interesting that you've responded in that way? And you've taken that very metric approach to emotion, to relationship, to connection, and used it to increase your own fulfillment, which is a fascinating approach to it. 
And, and I think the science is really compelling on this, especially for listeners, which is, you know, the data show that because the brain is plastic, it's evolving, it's adapting, that when you invest in relationships, it becomes easier over time. In other words, the brain becomes biased towards what you're doing currently. So if you do enough of this thing, if you play enough tennis, you get better at tennis. If you focus on building connections with other individuals, and that focus really means, again, investing that relationship, investing time, investing emotion, um, then it becomes easier and easier. And so, I, you know, I think we all can get better at this. Um, and so, you know, why not? Tell me, tell me about Sister Mary Maristella. Yeah. So I had an interesting childhood. I, I lived with a nun named Sister Mary Maristella. Um, she was uh, uh, in a uh, was trained in a convent in St. Louis, Missouri, in the middle of the U.S. And then at some point uh, decided that uh, as a uh, strong extrovert, that living in a uh, convent in which you only were allowed to speak an hour a day uh, and um, and like any organization, convents, religious organizations have politics, and there was a bunch of politics going on. Uh, she decided uh, before she was fully in uh, the, the system that she would quit. Uh, eventually met my father and uh, had four children. Um, so my mom was, um, was um, well-educated, uh, Catholic Church educated her, uh, but she was very, very, very traditionally religious. Uh, we had to go to, even in the you know, 70s and 80s, we had to find the one church that still had Catholic Latin mass because, God forbid, the priest should speak in English. Oh, my gosh, it's a violation of all the rules. And so, yeah, so she was a very black. God forbid yeah. you should be able to understand what's happening. <laughs> right. Oh, I learned Latin. Yeah, it was kind of fun. You're speaking some weirdo language. Um, yeah, so, you know, what was interesting is my mom had this very black and white view of good and evil. And I think that uh, fascinated me as a Martian that when I observed humans, um, I saw a lot of gray in there. And so, um, uh, to her great credit, my mother would really engage with me more than my my dear darling engineer father. My mother really engaged with me on these really deep questions about human nature. You know, are human beings born good or bad? Um, you know, what's the definition of good or bad? You know, how do we know? We would go to the dictionary, the encyclopedia, and we had these really great conversations. And it really uh, kind of stoked in me a desire to understand human beings um, at a deeper level, right? My mom's screen was through religion, right? It, it had to be, you know, found in the Bible or the teaching of the Catholic Church. I said, well, I, that doesn't, that seems like, you know, it's all kind of made up or interpreted. And I, how, how can I have, you know, really strong, uh, you know, why not Buddhism or, you know, why not Protestantism or something else? And so I took the sort of science approach. And um, uh, I wouldn't say we came to the, uh, an agreement. My mom's passed away a couple years ago, but uh, I think she began to appreciate the approach that I took uh, later in life. And I actually appreciated her approach. I think her approach was um, a sense of clarity and uh, I think much towards the end of her life, humility, that if things are not black and white, which I think she began to understand, then you have to be really humble about making judgments about other people. And I think that's where science um, builds in, at least for me, not only tolerance for the weirdness of humans, because they're all weird, but really an acceptance that what the brain is doing is adapting at millisecond frequency to our internal, external environment. And so the takeaway for listeners is that do not expect the humans to be consistent in anything they do. They're going to be inconsistent. That's the rule in the brain. That's the rule in your body is, um, you know, adaptation um, to, so that the organism can survive and ultimately reproduce. 
you know, it's interesting there that you use the word humility because something I wrote down when I was, when I was going through, um, all of your materials was that by looking at, and we're going to get into this now, looking at morality and trust through, through the lens of science, through the lens of chemistry, something happens where you can distance yourself enough from the story about why someone is behaving the way they're behaving. And you can look at it very objectively. You know, that's, that's an imbalance that's happening there. You know, that could be, there could be a root cause there that this person in this moment isn't able to control. There's almost an, an, empathy that comes with being dispassionate about it. Does that feel, does that feel true for you? Oh, that's a beautiful statement, Julie. That's, I, I couldn't have put it better myself. So here's the data. So we find in experiments, when we look at people cooperating in, in objectively observable ways, say sharing money with each other, that regularly about 5% of the individuals uh, in an experiment um, are, are, we used to call them bastards. So these are people who just, some, someone's nice to them and they don't reciprocate. So they are unconditional non-reciprocators. So we just call them bastards because that's too many syllables. Uh, and, and these individuals, about half of them have, have severe personality disorder. So they look a lot like psychopaths and we've studied criminal psychopaths in some detail. We can talk about those if you like. So these people just lack empathy. They, they don't cooperate. They, by the way, don't form relationships. They don't have pets. I mean, they're really um, very socially isolated. Uh, so, you know, the people who just kind of got a bad genetic draw or got bonked on the head. But the other half of that 5% are people having a really bad day. So, again, we see that physiologically. And so for those individuals, you know, something happened to them, right? And so, as you said, we generally jump to what's called the fundamental attribution error. I see Julie behaving badly and say, oh, she's a bad person, as opposed to saying, oh, I bet she's having a bad day. Uh, so there's this wonderful quote from the Dalai Lama who said, the important thing about difficult people is they let us uh, express true compassion. It's easy to be compassionate for someone you care about or love. It's very difficult to be compassionate to somebody who is difficult, who is bothersome. But those are the people who really need compassion, right? They're something, they're going through something. So again, the psychopaths, you know, maybe 2% of the population, they're dangerous, stay away from them, you need to cut your ties with them. But for most other people, they're good people having a bad day. And so I think that's where the, the acceptance comes from. Because we've been good people having bad days as well. And we don't want to be ostracized for that. Mm, I, it's funny, in a very simplistic term, I was having a similar thought in traffic the other day, where, you know, the, the light turns from red to green, and within less than a second, someone's beeping somebody else. I mean, I live in the middle of the city. And you think, what what causes that? I mean, there's the amount of times where I've been the person who's either talking to kids in the back or just sat having a thought that, that's been beeped at. You would think that something would go on in our brains where we would go, I'm just going to give that person a second of grace because I've often needed a second of grace because I'm having a good day, a bad day. But we we forget. We think that we're the only ones having a human experience. And that everybody else, it would be great if they would be almost behaved like they weren't having a human experience, that they weren't human. Yeah. And, and I think letting go of this need for perfection, right? Uh, you know, what's that saying from the Bible? You know, he who is perfect, throw the first stone or something. Like, we're all imperfect. So just accept it. My wife of 25 years, highly imperfect. I'm highly imperfect. Um, I'm, I'd love to be a perfect dad. It's not going to happen. Uh, because I don't know, things happen to me. I am in a bad mood sometimes. Even me, hard to believe, can be in a bad mood or, or I have a bad day. Um, so I think that's where appreciation, that's where love in the philia sense comes in, right? Let's let's just try to be friends to the people who need us more. I, here's a short story. I had a colleague uh, 
um, uh, at, a, at a different university who just didn't like me. And he made it very clear. He was, I mean, articulated it, you know, uh, I don't know why you're here. You suck. And, you know, I okay, will. Okay. Well, at least that's clear. Yeah, real clear. And um, uh, anyway, long story short, it came out that, uh, in fact, he, he suffered from pretty severe depression. And, um, and once he was diagnosed and medicated, he, you know, was kind of, um, was very open about that. And then when I saw him have these kind of, you know, depression is an anxiety disorder, when he'd be really anxious and just wound up and kind of lashing out, I really felt so sad for him. I thought, oh, his poor life. Like I know his adult children don't talk to him much and he, his wife is really odd. And, you know, I thought, oh, this poor man has a, just a tough life. And so it all, yeah, as you said, it really changed. When I thought about this as a, as a psychiatric or neurologic disorder, I said, oh, Gosh, you know, who cannot be empathetic towards someone who's really suffering? Yeah, they're taking that on me, but I'm fine. I'm happy. My life is good. And I'm so blessed to have that. You know, all this guy deserves is just, you know, compassion. So I always felt like I would, I realized I would touch him on the, on the uh, shoulder as he went by, even though he, you know, told me he would, you know, uh, made it his goal in life to make sure, you know, that my career was inhibited. Um, he couldn't do that. He was just lashing out. So, you know, I, I, by the way, I'm no saint. I, I, lashed, I lashed out at him a couple of times publicly, and I wish I hadn't. Um, I've gotten into road rage a couple of times. I wish I hadn't. So, you know, we, we all have bad days, and, and that's okay, right? It doesn't mean you're a bad person. And, and that framing that if you are entitled to a human experience, so too should, must everybody else, just by, just by its nature. Now, so you, you grew up with that, with that really interesting dialogue going on you know, good versus bad, morality, trust. And then you, you took that and you, which I just thought was fascinating. You decided to apply a scientific lens to morality to actually figure out what it is that drives our morality. If, if, so at first it's our decisions and our moral code and the code, be it religious or any other code that we choose to live by. But was there something molecular, something fundamental going on within our DNA that made us moral or not moral. What, what set you, what set you on that path? When did you decide to do that? Yeah, another great question. Um, so I had done work, again, I'm in two fields. I'm in neuroscience and in economics. And in my sort of, uh, I, I, I'm not traditional in both, I should say, sort of, sort of combine them. Um, in the sort of economics realm in the late 90s, I had found that uh, trust at the level of countries. Um, so uh, you know, the degree of trust that people ha within a country have uh, with each other is among was, was among the strongest predictors that economists have ever found to explain differences in living standards. So high trust countries are almost always um, high living standard countries. This is Denmark, um, Sweden, uh, and low trust countries, uh, Venezuela, Colombia, are almost always uh, poor countries. And so we built mathematical models, we tested these models, we started looking at the mechanisms through which trust um, helps alleviate poverty. And, uh, and, and this work had a lot of impact. The World Bank flies me out, you know, how do we raise trust in these developing countries and, and increase, increase living standards? Uh, wonderful. Uh, and uh, this was a uh, there's a lot of biology in that, I should say, but um, inevitably someone would ask me this question, which I couldn't answer. For a given country, why do two strangers ever trust each other? I said, well, I can tell you about why Sweden's different than Colombia. And I just couldn't answer that question. And at some point you go, man, I suck. I, you know, like, that's the most basic question. 
So we really began looking at trust as a as a trust and trustworthiness as a sort of a thin slice uh, on the morality question. So why would you, if someone trusts you? Why would you ever reciprocate and be trustworthy? So that's something that's a that's something I can I can study in a very deep way. And then um, ultimately, Julie, you know, the secret of my success is I'm a tool guy. So I developed a tool, a protocol to measure uh, a neurochemical called oxytocin uh, in humans, the acute production of this chemical. Uh, So very well studied in animals, not very well studied behaviorally in humans. And now we had a tool so we could start asking questions with that tool. And we found, in fact, that, again, for 95% of the people we studied, when someone intentionally trusts you with something tangible like money, um, the brain produces... Uh, in proportion to the trust shown, this neurochemical oxytocin, and the more oxytocin your brain released, the more likely you were to reciprocate. And so now we had an underlying thin slice, if you will, on one moral behavior, right? And so that's kind of the the basis for the the golden rule, right? The golden rule, which exists in every culture, is you're nice to me, I should be nice to you in return, roughly. So okay, we we got a we got a slice of that. So then we began looking at other. Uh, moral behaviors. Again, these are not moral structures. This is not religion or philosophy. This is uh, really behavioral neuroscience. So we started looking at why people donate to charity, why they're generous to strangers, on and on and on. We started building up a portfolio of, I would call these pro-social behaviors, but to me, that's the same thing as moral. So again, for me, moral has no philosophical or religious meaning. It's just a categorization of behaviors that are uh, appropriately, socially appropriate uh, in most settings. Um, and so, yeah, so we found that oxytocin was a, a key signaling molecule in the brain that scientists really hadn't identified as initiating a cascade of activity in the brain that motivated a positive uh, social interactions that we could call moral. Um, and so that was interesting. We had a, a, a really a new target. And just to finish that little conversation, uh, that little point, the the degree that oxytocin explained these prosocial or moral behaviors was very large. So, you know, half sometimes of the variation in behaviors from people being trustworthy or not being trustworthy was attributable to oxytocin. So this was not a small thing. It was really important. Uh, and, and then you can ask a lot of questions. You can ask, well, what about uh, people who don't make oxytocin? Do they exist? What about factors that inhibit or promote oxytocin? What about people with terrible childhoods? Do they develop uh, properly? Do they release this neurochemical when they should? And so we we you know evolved this into looking at clinical populations, psychiatric and neurologic populations, um, working with criminals, uh, and and really digging into where appropriate social behaviors come from that we all have kind of internalized. Again, we may not always do it. But we have internalized those rules, and, and those rules vary a little bit by society, but not a ton. So in terms of the the moral molecule, the, the conclusion that you came to was that there is, a, there is a molecule that is directly attributable to trustworthiness, to what we would deem moral behavior or trustworthy behavior. Um, empathy is it would be probably, I think, another way to, to language that. And that is oxytocin. The the product our ability to produce oxytocin dictates that behavior. Talk a little bit because I think that explains this explains it in a really beautiful way. Talk about that original experiment that you ran to when you were concluding this. Yeah, the the first experiment again was in this trust area because that was so important to understand uh, uh, poverty, uh, you know, versus um, you know wealth. 
And so, yeah, real simple. Uh, this is an experiment uh, or a task that we uh, copied from uh, a Nobel Prize winner in economics named Vernon Smith. He's the father of experimental economics. And um, I spent a bunch of time in his lab. And here's the way the task works. You uh, recruit these people for an experiment. Um, there's no deception. You're going to pay them for their decisions, put people in partition computer stations. And here's the task. We give you lots of examples, chance to ask questions. You're going to make a single decision. So um, there's, say, 20 people in the room, and the computer randomly pairs them up. Within this pairing, there is a decision maker one and a decision maker two. So one goes first, and then two goes second. And here's the task. Everyone who agrees to participate, sit in these hard chairs for an hour, earns $10 in their account. And then the first decision maker, after instruction and, and lots of examples, can choose, if he or she would like to, to send some of their $10 to the person they've been matched to. But the trick is they don't know who that person is. They can't talk to that person. It's all done by computer, and you're going to do it one time. Now, the only reason you would do that is because we, the experimenters, have designed this uh, this task so that any money you send to the other person will come out of your account but gets tripled in decision-makers to account. So uh, if you uh, have $10 and you decide to send that person 5 you keep 5 but that person gets $15. Um, and so the computer tells the second person, hey, guy one sent you $15 because these are undergraduates and they don't pay attention. We remind them the total in your account is the amount you receive from person one plus your $10. So my example, you have 15 plus 10, you have $25. Would you want to send some amount back to person one from zero to the total in your account? And so this Nobel Prize winner, Vernon Smith, uh, who, who invented this task, uh, and the consensus is that the transfer from person one to person two is a signal of trust or hope or belief that person two will get it because he or she was instructed the same way and understand that you're enriching that person, but signaling that hey, in the California vernacular, hey, dude, I just made you a lot better off. You should flip some of that cash back to me, right? But person two has no obligation to do that. And you're going to make a single decision and walk out of the lab. You're anonymous. No one knows what you did other than the cashier who's going to pay you. And he or she doesn't even know what experiment you're in. So what Smith told me was, you know, the consensus in economics is that if you're person two, money is good. You should keep all the money. And he was flummoxed on why person two would return any money to person one. But I had a hypothesis. I said, oh, I think that receiving that nice benefit from person one, even if it's anonymous, will cause the brain to make oxytocin. And that's indeed what we found. So I think of, of this uh, very narrow, self-interested, money-centric view of economics as caveman economics, me like money, money good, me keep money. But that's not what this task is really capturing. This task is really a social task that captures what we do in daily life, which is I hold the door for you when you walk in the store, you say thank you. I let you cut in front of me of traffic and you give me the thank you wave. Um, uh, when I do business with somebody, I'm looking for a win-win proposition. You're going to pay me, but I'm going to provide a service to you that's going to uh, be valuable enough to you to pay for it. And I would not renege on that, right? I want to give you more than you expect because I want to build up their reputation for, for being a fair dealer. Um, so I think, you know, even though economists have kind of invented this task, it was a very scripted way to capture whether people are trustworthy when someone has shown they want to play nice. Um, and so, yeah, so uh, I should say also in this experiment, which you did pay them, 
we took blood before and after. So literally, you're making decisions based on blood money. You earned this money the hard way. We're going to jab your arm with a needle twice. Um, and yet, people still reciprocated, which I think is fascinating. So same thing we've looked at um, using um, a video stories to look at why people donate to charity. From a narrow economic perspective, I see a story about a little kid who's dying of brain cancer. Um, I can't change that kid's life by donating some money for my experiment to, uh, I don't know, a hospital that's treating that kid. In all likelihood, if I'm thinking about it, that little video, that kid's probably already dead if he's got brain cancer. By the time I see it, so I can't help that child. Why do I still donate money? And that seems to be a really interesting question about our human sociality, what it means to be connected to the other humans, not just one degree of separation, but many degrees of separation, right? We will cry when we see, uh, you know, a, an injured child at a disaster in Japan. Why is that? It's really interesting to me. There's something in there, and I want to go back to the results of that experiment, but there's something in there around that word reciprocity. You, know, you were talking about that countries with high trust tend to have um, high prosperity and that the very fabric of our society, the very fabric of our relationships relies on this notion of reciprocity. I will love and care for you and, and in return, you know, you love and care for me. I will create a community where we have this implicit agreement that I will take care of this community and you will also take, you will reciprocate by also taking care of this community. And it's fascinating that our physiology has evolved because you've also said before that human beings, just to segue, human beings are the only creatures with fully developed moral sentiment. We are the only creatures that have this fascination with why people are doing what they're doing and what that, and, and to create meaning out of that. So yeah, there's two parts to that. The, the reciprocity piece is, do you feel like that's, that's the fabric of it? Like without that, we wouldn't have been able to, as the human race, to create what we have created. Yeah, the, the data suggests that. I think it's even deeper than that. So there are some evidence, although uh, not conclusive, that around 200,000 years ago, uh, early Homo sapiens had a, a genetic mutation that made us much more sensitive to social information. So that uh, mutation uh, put many more receptors for oxytocin in areas of the brain that essentially make it feel good to do good. So now we're essentially being rewarded neurologically to cooperate. Um, and so once you find that in the brain, once you see that, uh, then you go, oh, this is not, it's not unnatural for us to um, conglomerate at work and uh, work on a joint project. It's not unnatural for us to be on a sports team. Um, it's not unnatural for us to, to form friendships very rapidly. That's what social creatures do. Uh, and we're, we're herd animals. And so we, our brains are anatomically designed to be very sensitive to that. So, you know, think, think in, in our own lives, um, you know, when, when we say something and, and, and we can see from the facial expression, um, that we've somehow hurt someone, even if we didn't mean to, we just, you know, you're like, oh, you go home and you, you can't stop thinking about it. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, I feel terrible. And, uh, and you feel like you want to apologize. Well, we go through our lives doing that as children. We learn right away what people respond to positively and negatively. Most children do. And so we are, yeah, we are uh, not only genetically designed to be very sensitive to social information, we are being, we are adapting, our brain is adapting to that feedback we're getting from the other humans. Um, so having said that, it, just like oxytocin seems to be the neural substrate of the golden rule, there's an anti-golden rule, right? So if you're bad to me, I can be bad back to you. 
and we studied that as well. And that's another way to run a society or run an organization or run a family. I can do it through fear. Um, and the, the problem with fear is we acclimate to fear pretty quickly. I just want to go back to the experiment for a second because this you know, feels like the beginnings of, of this journey for you, that moment where the aha moment, the apple dropping moment where you suddenly realized that, oh my goodness, there is a, there is a genesis to this and we can track it. The, so the more, so you've got somebody donating a portion of their money to a complete stranger and you've got that person um, receiving the money and then making the decision about how much they wanted to give back all anonymous. What did you find in relation to oxytocin between the correlation of whether I gave back to the person who gave to me and how much I gave back? Yeah, great question. So the more person two received from person one, the more their brain released oxytocin. And the more oxytocin they released, the more money they reciprocated, even though they did not have to, right? Again, with, 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 a, with a fair amount of variation around that. So that's the average. And the variation is something we, we looked at a lot. So, um, for example, women tend to be less initially trusting, but more uh, generous when they reciprocate than do men. Um, we find that some personality traits, people who are warmer, who are more empathic, have a, have a bigger oxytocin response than people who are less empathic. Um, so there's some variation there, and we can talk about that. I think that also the promoters and inhibitors of oxytocin are really interesting. So one of the most potent inhibitors is the neurochemical that is the favorite of half of the world population, which is testosterone. So um, um, men who have five to 10 times more testosterone than women, so it's mostly men, men with high levels of testosterone um, tend to reciprocate much less than men with lower levels of testosterone and, and women. Um, so testosterone inhibits this response. So um, you know, who are the most testosterone poisoned humans on the planet? Teenage boys, which I used to be one. And so, as you said, oxytocin increases empathy, testosterone reduces empathy. So now it's all about me. So you send me five of your $10. I'm like, screw you. I mean, in my head, screw you, you selfish person. Yeah, I deserve everything. Right. And so I think testosterone is, it kind of whispers in your brain, you are a little God. Everyone should bow down to you. Um, so we run experiments where we have given men synthetic testosterone or placebo, and sure enough, they share less with others. They almost never reciprocate. The good thing that high testosterone males do, though, is punish people who don't cooperate. So if you're not playing nice, testosterone is the sort of anti-golden uh, you know, rule. It's the, it's the negative rule. And so who are the high testosterone males in society? They tend to fall in professions in which you're enforcing the rules. The military, the police, firemen have high testosterone levels, um, and in construction do. So again, testosterone is adaptive. It's not fixed. It's, it's adapting to the environment you're in. Um, but uh, again, I think you know these are all unconscious responses that are measurable using technology, but we don't know. So when I don't have teenage boys, but if I had a teenage son and he's you know screaming at me on what a stupid dad I am, right? If I know the science, I go, oh, he's testosterone poisoned. It's all about him, and it actually doesn't have anything to do with me. And so, yeah, don't get mad. Don't hit the kid. Don't, you know, it's cool. It's, it's, it's all going to balance itself out eventually. It's always struck me as very as strange being and, – and, you know, this – I'm always very – Tentative when we when it's, it's the conversation starts going into kind of gender gender buckets, 
Um, but there are some through line, like there are, there are some truths through this. There are averages. Um, but I've always found it fascinating as a woman that the word she is, she's hormonal or, you know, she's just hormonal or, you know, what happens if she gets hormonal, this, this abject fear around women's hormones. And yet I don't think I've ever heard somebody looking at, at a man in a particular role and saying, you know, he must just be a bit hormonal today. He's feeling a bit hormonal, not necessarily in a, in a negative way, but just as a fact that testosterone is a hormone. And, you know, he's obviously feeling a little bit hormonal today. There's obviously a fluctuation going on there. It seems to be something that we're very cognizant of with the women in our lives and not so cognizant of with the men in our lives. And again, not throwing it at somebody as an attack, but from a compassionate place to be able to say, you know what, I think there's obviously some biochemistry going on there because that was completely out of context. I totally agree with you. I think it's it's unfair to do this to women. So if you win a chess match, your testosterone goes up. If you're watching Australian rules football and your team loses, your male or female, your testosterone goes down if you're connected to that team. So, you know, these neurochemicals, about 200 of these neurochemicals are active in the brain. And we don't know about them. They're just sloshing around, helping us adapt to our environment. So, um, yeah, I think it's not taking others too seriously, not taking ourselves too seriously, and having a little compassion for others. Um, yeah, we're all hormonal. Uh, yeah, that's that's life. That's the way it works. Now, you said you don't have teenage boys, but I do know that you have teenage girls um, because of the conversation we had before we, before we come on air. Talk to me just a little bit about how your work and what you've discovered and the area that, you know, you spend most of your time working within. Has that impacted how you relate to your to your children? Has that impacted the way that you parent? Probably, Julie. I'm 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 not really sure. I, I'm trying to be a better person. My kids certainly made me a better person. Okay, here's here's some science on that. How about I give you a science answer as opposed to a, a self insight answer, which I'm I'm afraid I can't do very well. Um, which is uh, again certainly knowing about you know the the way the brains develop is uh, you generate you know compassion for your own kids, um, but. Something interesting happens when men are in committed relationships, their testosterone falls, and that uh, allows for greater oxytocin release. When uh, men have children, their testosterone falls further. And just based on my own experience, when men have girl children and you pick up little frilly dresses every day for them, your testosterone goes to zero. You become a big girly man like me. So um, uh, this is only funny because I'm six foot four, 210 pounds athlete, and I am the the biggest marshmallow you ever met in your life when it comes to my kids. So, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, I try not to take my, my behavior too seriously. I'm a big believer in apologies, right? So, you know, if I, you know, did something that, you know, you know, was, was wrong, apologize, even to my children. I remember my, my oldest daughter was like five and we, you know, punished her for doing something that she later on said, look, I didn't do this. Here's why. Oh, okay. And I said, okay, good. Um, then you should give me a timeout. I said, I made a mistake. I'm trying to learn to be a parent. And uh, so if I make a mistake, you can choose. If you think I've made a, you know, an error, then you give me a timeout, which by the way, as a parent is the best thing ever. 20 minutes by myself. Oh, it's a dream. But then the kids felt, but my kids felt, um, like they had some control over their lives, that it wasn't this, it was a, it was a cooperative system, not a hierarchical system. Um, by the way, another thing I, there's another thing I learned. I invented the time in. So I think of the time out as a social creature, right? We're saying you've misbehaved, you're having a bad time. So I don't want to help you. I want to hurt you more by isolating you. And that's not, uh, you know, 
healthy for social creatures. So I created the time in, which is you're having a bad day. You have to sit in dad's lap and have me hold you for one minute for every year you are old. So the nice thing about that is when the kids are seven or eight, it's wonderful. When they're like 12 or 13 and their friends are over, they are aghast. And I would say, yep, you misbehaved. Your friends don't have to watch. We got to come in my room. I'm going to hold you in my lap for 12 minutes. Like, oh my God. I'm like, yep. So it's a wonderful, it's a carrot and a stick all at the same time. Oh, there's so much I love about that. There's so much, there's so much I love about that. Just going on in the apology piece, I think that was one of the the greatest flips in my brain that, that being a parent created. And for the first few years of being a parent, you know, you're just, I was aghast at how many things you get wrong, how much you don't recognize yourself when you're sleep deprived and you're responding in ways you've never even seen yourself respond in before. And then I suddenly, I remember having this moment after a conversation with a friend and it was one of those aha moments where I suddenly thought, oh, my greatest role here is not to model how to behave when things go well. You know what? I'm wallpaper when things go well. They're not paying paying any attention to me when things go well. My greatest role here is to model how to behave when things don't go well, how to behave when you haven't handled something well, how to behave when you are wrong, how to behave when you need to reconnect after it's for whatever reason, there's been a disconnection. That's my, one of my biggest roles here. And if that's one of my biggest roles, then Every time something goes wrong, that's an opportunity for me to model what an apology looks like. That's an opportunity for me to model what reconnection looks like. And those are going to be greater gifts for my children than the ability to skip through life when it's dandy. And that one one flip for me just saved me an ocean of of guilt and shame and, and wasted energy. And so I love and I love the time in. I'm going to use that. Love the time in. I, I, I really like what you said. I, it's just right on target, right? We can't, again, we can't hold ourselves or others to a, a level of perfection. Um, and that's okay. That's what makes life interesting is that I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to be inconsistent. And that's all right. And then we should talk about that. I think in, in the work setting, when you see people who are struggling, uh, it's a chance to connect, right? Where I'm back to connection. You got me started on that track. I'm going to stay on it. Um, so really sitting down human to human and say, hey, it seems like you've been struggling the last couple of weeks. What's going on? And so the, the difficulty with that is you've got to open up yourself to emotional um, a conversation, uh, which, uh, you know, if you have any empathy at all that we all do, uh, it's painful. It's hard. Um, and I'm a, kind of a, you know, introvert. I don't really want to get involved in people's lives too much, but I need to. If you're working with me or if you're in my family or if you're gosh, on my, on my sports team, whatever it is, I need to spend time with you if, if you're underperforming and you're struggling and then talk about that. And sometimes it has nothing to do with work. It has everything to do with um, my dog died or my spouse is unhappy or uh, we're thinking of you know, moving to a new city or whatever. It is. Let's talk about that. And so I think when you have people you care about, like at work, when you have high performers, high performers are rare. They're like a unicorn. I don't want to lose high performers. I want to really spend time connecting to these people and talk about um, what I can do uh, as, a, as a kind of a servant leader to help them through those rough areas because you know they've had whatever years of high performance and now they're underperforming. You don't cut you know you don't cut people out. You figure out what's going on, what's happening. Do you need help? Uh, do you need time off? I'd much rather have someone go home when they're having a bad day 
and come back tomorrow refreshed than burn eight hours, you know, stomping around unhappy or unable to work. I just think it makes no sense at all to me. Just go home, get your head straight or whatever, or, or deal with the problem you're having. Come back tomorrow or whenever you can when you're fresh. And there's just that link there that I saw between the time in that you were talking about as a parent. And I sometimes find the best leadership lessons I have ever learned is through family, whether you have children or whether you don't, Those through those intimate relationships. That what you've just described there is the work version of a time in. It's a, you're struggling and not necessarily behaving at your best. I have two options here. I either cut you out and admonish you um, distance from you, put down KPIs and, and create structures to measure you by so that I don't have to dive into your world. Or I create a time in and go, right, come here, come into the office, sit down, talk to me, what's going on. That's exactly a work, a work time in that you just covered there. Man, you're brilliant. I didn't make that connection, but you did. I love that. So I, I would simplify it by saying praise in public, critique in private. Right. So when we see people who get dressed down in public, that produces a, a defensive response. That produces a fear response. Uh, you're being ostracized from your social group. That is really counterproductive. But if I sit with you and say, hey, you're awesome, but you're struggling, I can tell. What's going on? But you also do, can do the, the positive. So I had a, a woman's work with me for, oh, gosh, 15 plus years uh, named Beth. And uh, one time she walked in my lab and she was just walking on air. And I said, you look fabulous. Like you, did you meet a boy? Like what's going on? You know, you're, you're very happy. And she goes, you know, I started running about three months ago with my sister. I've lost 15 pounds. I moved to my first 10K in a couple of weeks. She goes, I can't believe that you saw that I was that happy. I'm like, oh yeah, you, you just, you are glowing. And it, you know, it didn't take a lot of effort. It took 20 seconds or 30 seconds to say that. And she has told me subsequently how much it meant to her that I recognized that she was just having a great day. Um, you know, that's, that's the human connection. That's the human behavior that um, we all just need a little of that sometimes, right? It doesn't take a lot. It's 30 seconds. Can't you burn 30 seconds to say something nice to somebody? Yeah, sure. It's not hard. But you have to pay attention. And that's the hard part, right? We're, we're busy, right? So it's, it's hard to pay attention when you're busy. Exactly that, that when you're busy or when it's high stakes, high intensity or a crisis, it's those are the moments that get lost. And we used to have a saying um, in my office, I used to own a talent management agency. And there's one thing that when you're managing extremely um, talented, intelligent human beings, you know, there's, there's often some drama. There's often, you know, there's often something going on that you have to manage in the background. And we used to have a saying, I used to have to train the people that worked with me how to deal with these kind of high intensity situations. And we came up with this almost threefold strategy. And the first was state. You have got to deal with the state, first of all. You can't jump over the fact that someone's angry, upset. Um, you can't pretend it's not there. You have to deal with it. Even if you just send them for a walk for five minutes, go take a walk, come back, make a cup of tea, come back. So you have to deal with state, first of all. Then you can move on to the situation at hand. And then you can move on to the system that created the situation. But everybody has their preferences. Some people get stuck in state and they only want to talk about state. Some people, especially the introverts, don't want to talk about state at all, don't want to acknowledge state, you know, what emotional state you're in. They want to jump straight over to the system. Okay, how did this happen? And some people get really lost in the situation itself. And 
never get to the next part, which is how do we prevent it from happening again? And so that frame of you deal with the state first, then the situation, and then you have a conversation about the system, we found to be really useful when it came to teaching people how to deal with other human beings in those moments where it is high intensity and we can get lost. We can get lost in the intensity of the emotion. I love that. It's very systematic and it's also very warm. It's it's a, it's a caring way to get someone reset. And I think that's, we all need that sometimes. And I think that's where, you know, really caring about someone, loving for someone, you know, again, in the filia sense or, or in the family sense, um, you know, if you need help, we don't always ask for help, right? So if someone is struggling, let's let's give them give them a chance to reset. Yeah, that's beautiful. I want to touch on um, as our kind of final topic. I want to I want to touch on another fascination in your world, which you, which we kind of briefly touched on in various points throughout the conversation, and that is the power and the future of storytelling. What's the link here between everything that you've studied up until this day, morality, trustworthiness, oxytocin, and stories and storytelling? One, another wonderful question. I, I'll give you the, the true answer as opposed to the um, uh, polished, uh, disingenuous answer, which was, yeah, I was on an airplane coming back from Washington, D.C. My kids are little. And, you know, like you, I'm a busy person. And I, I love that five or six hour cross-country flight in the U.S., to get work done. But the sky gods had uh, decided that they would make the flight turbulent. I couldn't type. So I said, okay, I will watch the movie. And uh, the movie was the Clint Eastwood uh, Academy Award winner, Million Dollar Baby, which is a father-daughter story. And I have two daughters. And so I'm watching this movie. And the next thing I know, the guy next to me is poking me in the shoulder. And at the end of the movie, it's, uh, if you, people haven't seen the movie, it's kind of a spoiler. But anyway, there's a very, very sad scene at the end, heroic but sad. And I wasn't just crying. Like every orifice in my face was shooting out liquid. And so the guy next to me goes, sir, do you need some help? And I was like, I lost it. I just completely lost it. So anyway, I went back to my lab the next day, and I told the uh, uh, psychologist in my lab, named George, about this. He goes, oh, yeah, psychologists do this all the time as a, as a way to manipulate emotions. They use videos. I said, man, I wonder if we could get oxytocin release at a distance. Like, would a video do it? So the stuff I said about movies, we, you know, I said that now, but this is 15 years ago. So we started looking at videos, and we found one that was a very good oxytocin stimulus about a father with a two-year-old son who was dying of cancer. We showed oxytocin some other neurochemicals predicted who would uh, donate to charity after they saw the video with high accuracy. Uh, and so we've, we've called this state immersion, this neurologic state in which I, I transport myself into someone else's world. I'm immersed in that world. Um, so when we analyzed the stories or the videos we were using, they had a classic story arc structure. They had a mystery. They had characters. They had authentic emotions. They had a crisis, and they had a resolution of that crisis. And so we looked at these data second by second. Uh, we look at the neurologic data, we see that this neurologic immersion tracked that story arc almost perfectly. That is, it peaked at that moment of, of a crisis and then the immersion resolved as the story resolved. And so there's like the scales fall from your eyes. You go, oh, holy crap, this is the most effective way to communicate information to other people. So in the last 15 years, we have studied a huge number of stories and have built a, a test bed actually for the U.S. military trained soldiers to communicate more effectively, and then finally started a company a couple years ago called Immersion Neuroscience that's created a platform so that anybody can measure at scale and in real time the brain's response to 
stories to movies to education, training, and actually capture the uh, effect that has on the brain. So the more immersed we are in a story or an experience, the more we remember it. So very high correlation between immersion and remembering that experience. So just like, uh, Julie, you remember the birth of your children, you remember you know, extraordinary events in your life. Um, those are tagged with emotion. And when those uh, emotions um, are, are part of a story or an experience, the brain saves this information in a very special way. So yeah, so I'm a big story uh, um, advocate because effective stories really not only get us to remember things, they motivate action. So story good, good for the brain. And I think it's it's worth getting really specific here because what you developed, you know, it, it, from a predictive standpoint, and I, this is this comes cr- directly from your website, so I'm, I'm it may well be different now, but you can predict with eighty percent accuracy what an audience will buy and remember. Now, including, you know, when you show them videos, TV ratings, movie ticket sales, Spotify streams, the effectiveness of training and advertising, um, sales bumps, 80% accuracy. I mean, that just blew, that just seems like an unending power. You take that and you, you know, you overlay that on top of politics, you overlay that on top of social change. You know, that seems like an incredible power to have. Yeah, as I said earlier, the, the brain wants to idle. It wants to be in homeostasis. But if you get me to care about something, then it, it's like your um, uh, your sweet little uh, – you can fill in your favorite ethnic stereotype, Italian, Jewish, Greek, mother, poking your brain. Hey, Julie. Hey, Julie. Hey, Julie. Remember this thing? Do this thing. So, yeah, it's a great way to, to connect people. Uh, and you know, right now we're stuck with intuition. So we think how many failed uh, you know advertising campaigns or – or gosh, you know the the uh, remote school, even in person school. School's hard, uh, but it, it, sometimes it's great. But you know, having a, a measurement technology again, I'm a tool guy um, that is designed specifically to predict actions and not feelings. Uh, I think that's um, you know, no one wants a crappy experience. No one wants a bad relationship. No one wants a, a bad uh, class. No one wants to see a bad movie. And uh, and as a kind of a cheap person by personality, I hate to see resources wasted. Oh, you know, this movie studio spent a hundred million dollars on this, this dog. How did people not know when they were producing this movie that it was, uh, you know, going to, going to fail. And I think because we're, and we're relying on, on intuition, but um, the great thing about science is it's kind of a prosthetic. It helps us extend our uh, innate abilities into a realm where we can capture in our case, know, the unconscious emotional responses in the brain with high fidelity in order to create yeah, just better experiences and better lives, maybe. So specifically, what what are you tracking when you're doing that and how are you tracking it? Oh, right. So the, so we had, uh, I should say, thank you to the U.S. taxpayers. We had millions of dollars from the U.S. military and the U.S. intelligence community to identify brain signals that would predict people's actions after a communication or an experience. And so we went through about 150 different brain signals, some of those measured at up to 1,000 times a second. So very expensive equipment, highly calibrated. And ultimately, what we found was that immersion required two things. The first is you have to pay attention. That's a given. If if you're sleeping, you know, it's not going to be a great experience for you. But the second is, coming full circle now to our conversation, oxytocin. You've got to actually have emotional resonance with that experience. So when your brain releases oxytocin, 
again, it says this experience is valuable. So I think of immersion as the brain's social valuation mechanism. So almost every experience we have in life has a social component. And so the brain, again, is tagging this as more or less valuable second by second. So if I can measure and curate that experience for high emotional resonance, I really make you care about it, uh, then I'm going to have it stick in your brain and I can motivate you to take actions. As as, uh, you foreshadowed, story is about the most effective way to do that. You can do it in other ways. But uh, storytelling is really, really good to, to keep that brain immersed, that lazy, lazy brain that just wants to eyeball. And you do it now with a Fitbit. You were talking about technology there, you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of technology. But right now, the way that you test storytelling, the way that you um, survey storytelling is that you get people to wear a Fitbit and you measure them via their Fitbit. Right. Or Apple Watch or, or, or any wearable with a heart rate. So we have um, extremely carefully mapped out the connections between the the central nervous system, the brain, and the peripheral nervous system. So from uh, the heart rate sensor, we can, or written algorithms, let us infer what the brain's doing second by second. So you don't need to be an MRI scanner. You don't have to draw blood from your arm or put a big helmet on your head. Um, So again, the brain's connected to the body. So again, to be honest, Julie, it sounds like I knew what the hell I was doing for the last 20 years. I didn't. We just tried a lot of things and Made a lot of mistakes until we. No one knows what the hell they're no, doing. No. If I say no one knows. If how. my <laughs> career of of twenty years no has taught me anything, no one knows what they're doing. Definitely, when they start out, a hundred percent of people don't know what they're doing. And then, as you, the more mastery you develop, I think the more you start to appreciate how little you know about what you're doing. You do. I, I have very modest goals in life. I'm trying to be slightly less stupid over time. So you're. I, I'm really curious with with what you've learned here. I'm I'm really curious. So you're you're measuring. So you're testing stories, advertising stories, training, um, as you've said, like Spotify, movies. You're testing the little individuals that are wearing some kind of wearable technology, and you're and you're measuring their brain as it relates to cortisol. Sorry, not cortisol, as it relates to oxytocin. What have you learned about the structure of effective storytelling, just in real layman's terms? If I'm about to create what I'm hoping is going to be a compelling story, what have you learned about the structure that I should follow? Perfect question. So I should say we have created a platform, so we're not doing this testing. The cool thing is because we can pull data from Fitbit, Apple Watch, whatever, um, anyone can do this. They just subscribe to the software. So you know, the, the amount of applications is, uh, is enormous. And I can't think of all those. So once people have that in their shop, they can just do whatever. Um, yeah, so here's a couple key takeaways that we found. Um, one is you've got about 15 seconds to capture attention. So if you don't get someone's attention fast, they're going to gonna space out and do something else. Um, so in Hollywood, near where I live, they call this the hot open. Open hot. Give me a reason to pay attention, number one. Number two, Create in your story characters at human scale. So give me data. You can follow up the story with data, uh, but start with a human scale story. One person or two people, not a group, not a not a tribe, not a you know not a data point, but uh, an individual. And then put that individual in a situation in which they can display authentic emotions, emotions that we would resonate with, we would understand. Uh, if I don't understand those emotions, then I'm not going to resonate with that story. And then uh, allow those those emotions to um, to flourish in a crisis. Have some kind of um, you know underlying crisis this person has to go through. We as social creatures are fascinated to see what the other humans are doing. That's why we read fiction. That's why we go to movies. 
regular alert from them, and then allow that uh, that crisis to resolve itself, usually through the actions of this kind of key protagonist. What did he or she do that resolve that story? So one of the underlying theories of why we still are reading fiction and going to movies is because we learn about worlds that we might be in. It's possible we might be in some kind of world. And so if you think of that story as a teaching opportunity to create uh, a situation in which your listeners can take something away that that could influence or help their lives, um, then you can think about crafting this story. And, and you know, the trick on storytelling is to start with the end, right? So screenwriting, you know, all that, writing novels, you always start with the end and you work backwards. So when you create a story, think about where you want the, the reader or listener to be and then create the structure, that nice narrative arc, so they end up there. So when you're talking about the end there, you mean the emotional state? Is that what you're referring to? Either the emotional state or the the thing that you want them to learn. The you know, most you know classic stories have some kind of moral, right? So uh, again, now we're back to Sister Mary Maristella. Um, you know, maybe there's a moral to these stories that tell us something useful. Um, stories can just be amusing. That's fine. But I think in in a business setting, um, I want to illustrate by using a crisis our customer had or something extraordinary that one of my colleagues had. I can I can back that up with data at the end. But if you lead with a story then you've actually done something very valuable from the brain's perspective. And that story is generally much better remembered than your 20 PowerPoint slides with that graphs and data. There's, there's a masterclass just, just in that last two minutes alone. So what I've taken from that is you start with, start with cortisol first, start with almost like an, that, that high of an alarm, a hot open, something that's going to get my attention fast. And then, you know, go into, go into oxytocin, which is kind of the empathy, um, for the situation they're in or the emotion that they're facing and then resolution, some form of, some form of resolution at the end. Is that a, does that summary do that justice? Exactly. But make it authentic. I think the emotions, uh, it's got to be real. So if you have a real person, so in an organization, I find that uh, the founder's myth sometimes in these organizations is a wonderful story about sacrifice, about commitment, about you know putting your house on mortgage to to fund the company. You know those are wonderful founding stories that are very motivating. Um, so if you think of a real person as opposed to a fictional, a customer like this, as opposed to we have a customer named Bob Smith. And Bob was going to lose his grocery store because uh, the prices uh, of, of the items he sold the most had gone up radically. And he asked us to come in and help him save his store. Okay, I'm already interested in that story, right? That sounds interesting because I can imagine my little business might go under. Or I can certainly empathize with businesses that have been around for a long time that struggle uh, to stay in business. As interviewing um, Ben Jones from Google, he runs a team within Google called Unskippable Labs, and I, you know, I, I talk about them a lot on the podcast because they're doing such incredible work. I mean, five billion hours of of stories, of videos, gets uploaded to YouTube every single day, and they're studying those stories to see what we, you know, that button at the bottom right when you're watching YouTube, where you can skip, you can skip the ad or skip the story. They're just this team are just studying what makes us skip or not skip stories. So, you know, some of the the data and the research that's coming out of this team is fascinating. And one of the things, one of the languaging that they use that I loved is if you want to know what's standing out now in terms of storytelling or the future of storytelling, the word's grippingly human, 
they use that language. It's got to be grippingly human. Can I, that's exactly what you're describing. Can I see myself in that situation? Can I imagine that I might be in that situation? Someone I love might be in that situation. Is it grippingly human? And that's always stood out to me, that language. I think it's just a, a beautiful reference when you're designing stories. Would I, would I call this grippingly human or is it a little bit detached? I love that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And we all want that connection. So again, we're, we're back to connection. You set this up so beautifully, our conversation. We want to connect to those characters and we'll do that if you can get me to care about it. If it's uh, sufficiently authentic, even if you smoothed out the story so it's easier to articulate, um, it's got to be real. Uh, and the brain wants the real, the real deal. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to finish now with the, with a question that I often end the podcast with, and I, I don't know how you're going to answer this with everything that we've covered. And it's been as fascinating a conversation as I knew that it was going to be. Um, if I gave you the stage, if I could give you the stage and a microphone and put in front of you every single person that you would ever want to influence, what was the one thing that you would want them to know? I would tell them that the science shows that love is more powerful than hate or fear. Don't take it from me. I'm a doofus. But the science shows this. So I think, uh, you know, we have trouble saying the L word, but it's okay. So another way to, to cast that, if I may, is um, I try to end every conversation with the word service. So I'll do that with you right now, Julie. This has been such a pleasure to be on with you, and I want to continue to be of service to you. So please reach out to me if I can help you in any way. I would be happy to do that. So I mean that in the most sincere way. Um, I hope that we get to stay in touch. And that is, to me, the philia kind of love. Um, you've been so kind to me. You've been you've prepared so beautifully. Um, I want to help you. And so I've pretty much would do anything you ask me to do because uh, you're choosing like an absolutely lovely person. So um, if you don't like the word love, use the word service. Love, and as we all know or discover at some stage, love, however you feel about the word, you know, whatever connotations it gives you, romantic, um, ethereal, or general, generally unhelpful, the, it's, a, it's a doing word. It's a word of action. So, you know, what is the action born out of that feeling? It's the service. It's to be of service in whatever form that takes. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to finish on that note. And also I'm going to write a list of things that I want you to do. So, you know, that's going to take me some time. Um, but in the meantime, in the meantime, thank you so much for your time, your work, your dedication to this field. I can just see this field just snowballing in coming years as we try to understand more and more about what it takes to make us more connected as societies, as brands and consumers, um, as we start to understand storytelling at a whole other level. So appreciate you and, and the work that you do. Thank you so much, Julie. What a pleasure. so much for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence now for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business an enterprise or spreading an idea there is now also a research paper 
that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.